0: It's wonderful to have this opportunity to uh, preach today and uh, it's an honor and i just hope that uh, god gives me the anointing to speak his words and that he filters out whatever is my thoughts that aren't coming from him and that if i do say anything that isn't from him that you will rapidly forget it and uh, carry on with what's positive i was just telling um sean right now that I don't think there could have been a better clip to start this than what uh, was just shown. I hadn't seen, I didn't know that it was coming. And uh, I visited um, the work that uh, you've just seen there. um, And it's incredible work. Uh, I can't say enough about uh, the team behind it and uh, the heart that they have for God and the way that they've allowed God to use them. And so if there's any way in which you can be involved, I'd highly, highly recommend that you do. Uh, So, The series as uh, you heard is on justice and uh, we call it Haki. Haki is truth, also means justice. And basically we're looking at this from the point of view of it being foundational to who we are as a church. We are all about compassion in terms of our values and that we need to be able to be felt or Christ should be able to be felt through us in whatever it is that we're doing, our ministries and whatever else that God has called us to do. And we need to be looking to be able to be used by God and praying to hear from him so that uh, we know where he wants us to be. And that really is the crux of it. How do you find out what God is saying uh, that you should be doing? So it's one thing to desire to be used of God. It's one thing to understand that you have been transformed by God in terms of your rebirth. But it's another thing really to step up and let the old man die and the new man come forward. And so that you're listening and hearing from God, because when we, when we become born again, and if you remember the moment that you became born again, <clears throat> your body didn't change one little bit, neither did your soul. The soul is, um, by many definitions, is your mind and your emotions and your will. And that didn't change either. It's a spirit that's been reborn. And this always, for me, is quite a challenge to really try to f- look into myself and understand what part of me is my soul and what part of me is my spirit. My spirit is made pure and clean and perfect through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to be able to be hearing from God's spirit in my spirit more clearly and not have my my soul cloud what it is that he might be saying or not saying. And I think this is a challenge for all of us as Christians. And we're going to speak to that to some degree uh, within the sermon this morning. And I want to just read something about what God's love is um, Tim Keller says, and he speaks about love, God's love for justice that is grounded in his love for the victims of injustice. And we all know that injustice is all over the place. Tim Keller says, if a person has grasped the meaning of God's grace in his heart, he will do justice. He doesn't live just, just if he doesn't live justly, then he may say with his lips that he is grateful for God's grace, but in his heart, he's far from him. If he doesn't care about the poor, it reveals that at best, he doesn't understand the grace that he has experienced. and At worst, he has not really encountered the saving mercy of God. Grace should make you just. And I think that's a powerful statement, one that we can all reflect upon as we think of ourselves. And how, how much do we, do we have compassion? How much does that sort of manifest in our lives day to day? Because God knows living in many, any city in the world, but particularly in poorer countries like this, injustice is evident certain types of injustice of course even in wealthy countries there's many more forms of injustice that may not be manifest but when you walk around in terms just of physical poverty uh, and and even diseases i walk around nairobi and i'm very often challenged i, I see somebody who has a, a very evident uh, malady some sort of growth or maybe uh, some like elephantiasis or something i like have seen this so many times and i always feel really weak because I know what the Bible says I should be able to do and I just walk past there hasn't been even once that I've stopped in the middle of a busy Nairobi scene and then put my hands on the person and said let me pray for you and yet I know that's what Jesus says I should be able to do and why is that and I feel that there's some gap between who we are who God says we are and who we think or what we truly believe And I'm saying this, I know there are those amongst you who will step out, and and kudos. And I think more of us should be able to do it. And we should be speaking to each other words of truth that are coming through prophecy, through God. All the gifts of the Spirit that are described in the Bible are things that we should be very actively involved in. And and I'm always really pleased when somebody reaches out to me with a word that they've heard. Rhino, thank you so much for the word you gave me this morning. It really touched me. Thank you. So this topic is critical, again, just because of how abundant the poverty is, the darkness that we see all around. When you think about Nairobi, Nairobi, which is obviously where we are, there may be people watching who aren't here, there may be people amongst us that are only here for a short time, but I want to just sort of focus on Nairobi for a minute and please apply whatever I say to wherever it is that you call home in terms of where you live. There's lots of poverty in this country, I've already said that, at the same time, we're looking at amazing things happening physically to the city. I don't know how many of you, by show of hands, have been on the expressway. <laughs> it's a pretty amazing experience. I got up there, and I was like, I was kind of in a hurry. So I started kind of traveling, and maybe a little faster than I should have. But then very quickly, I was saying, I've never seen Nairobi from, from this perspective, you know? And there are these flowers in the middle there. Mm-hmm. They're turning brown a little bit, but you know, still. <laughs> And, you know, you're seeing the city from a new perspective. And I was I just slowed down and enjoyed it. And in no time, I was exiting to where I needed to be uh, way, way earlier than I should have been. And so we're looking at all this happening to the city. And I'll tell you, ever since they began to build Thika Superhighway, this city has been confusing to many of us. I mean, there's things that you know, this is where I turn off, and suddenly it's not where you turn off anymore, and this and that, and it's, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing to see all this change. People who have been away for a while and then come back home are like, wow, the city is completely changed, you know? My dad, who lives in the countryside, when I was just telling him about the expressway the other day, he's 86, I think he is now, yeah. and uh, he was like, he, he couldn't even sort of conceive of what it might be, and uh, you know, it's, it's something that we all see, but at the same time, we know that there's a huge debt that we've taken on as a nation to be able to do all of that physical um, <clears throat> investment, the SGR included. And, and we wonder to what degree is this whole um, project tainted by corruption? Maybe whatever the SGR should have costed was, is much more than it did just because people wanted to skim off the top and so on, and that that debt is being saddled, onto our children are being saddled with that debt and our children's children, and so clearly there's things that are very clearly happening in ways that perhaps shouldn't. We look at Africa and look at Kenya, of course, uh, uh, being just a part of the continent, and at the the year 2000, at the turn of the century, of the millennium, uh, the population was 1.2 billion people. And if the growth rate continues as it is, it'll be 2.4 billion by 2050, that's double. That means that half the people living at that time will have been born in 2020. And so it's a huge burden to us. How are we going to make sure that the growth of the economy keeps pace with the growth of the population so that poverty isn't going to be as huge a problem or even more of a problem than it currently is? Where are all these young people going to get jobs? that need jobs. And if they don't have jobs, there's a saying in Nigeria that I heard once, they said that uh, poor people in Nigeria, or poor people anywhere, can't sleep because of poverty, because of hunger, because of all the stresses and so on. And he says and similarly, the rich people in Nigeria can't sleep because the poor people can't sleep. Because they're worried that these people might come and you know, visit them at night in ways that are not welcome. And this brings to mind this video, some videos that have been going around in social media. I think a lot of you have seen uh, some of the criminal events that have been recorded. There was a lady living in an upmarket part of Rongai, and she drives into her home, and these men come in after her, very worrying um, um, images. We all are concerned that crime is becoming a huge problem. We also know that at the same time, there's been some incredible inflows of capital into the continent. We've got um, the startup scene. Startup, in terms of technology in particular, is really exciting. It's part of what I do in my, in my work. <clears throat> and we're seeing that uh, last year, I mean, it's sort of like the growth is like this hockey stick, as it's called, uh, you know, every year, Uh, the amount of money coming in, particularly from places like Silicon Valley and Europe and so on into this startup scene in Africa is, is, is doubling. Last year it was about $5 billion coming into the continent and in the first two months alone of this year, it was half that amount. And so it looks like that growth is carrying on, but where is that money? It's in these companies that have huge valuations. Uh, about two months ago, one of the, the founders, there's, there's eight unicorns in, in Africa right now. Unicorns being countries, uh, companies that have a valuation of over a billion dollars. And so this guy comes to visit where I work. His name is Iino Lua from Nigeria, and he has Two of those unicorns, one company called Andela that's worth about $1.5 billion that he founded and another that is worth $3.7 billion. Flutterwave, it does money exchange uh, across the continent and it's about $3.7 billion. So this young man, he's 33 years old, has founded these two companies, so we're looking at this as, yes, it's unusual, no, it's not, uh, it's an outlier for sure, but at the same time, maybe just four years ago or so, or maybe, well, a little longer than that, there were no unicorns at all. So we're seeing there's a trend happening, and how is it that this can, be able to sort of impact what's happening, what's our role as Christians within all of this that's going on and how can we uh, uh, be, well, be looking out for what God is saying that we should be doing so that we're in rhyme with him as we see whatever's happening on, on the earth and able to steer things into the direction that brings glory to him. Corruption, uh, glorification of wealth, uh, do we see that? I mean, I, 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 I'm sure you're with me when you're driving and you sort of start to feel a little bit unchristian when you see these cars coming with the flashing lights and they're pushing you off the road and so on, sort of glorifying their, 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 their wealth or status and so on. And uh, you know, these kinds of things are part of what our culture is becoming and the part of the things that we don't like to see sexual sin, pervasive, all over the world, pornography and so on, and in terms even of uh, the music uh, that we see, the music videos and so on, there is like, somebody said somewhere, I think, I don't know if it's in the Bible, but it says the devil doesn't sleep, and I guess it's probably true, (laughs) because the activity in terms of all these negative things seems to be like... On steroids it's just really sort of over time you're looking at gender fluidity and all these weird uh, and unusual types of things happening in terms of people's minds and who they think that they are or might be you know god in genesis 1 said let us make them both male and female and now i understand there's about 50 definitions of gender across the board all sorts of uh, grayscales around what gender really means so what's really going on and how should we be active in all of this to try to sort of bring some sense through the whole picture. <clears throat> In terms of the global picture, again, uh, we are just part in terms of context of what's happening in the world. And you've got uh, COVID sort of knocked everything out of its usual pace. And then you've got um, all this inflation arising from all the money printing that's been going on. You've got um, very interesting things happening like currencies that are going digital, you know, the cryptocurrencies. But then to counter that, you have central banks talking about central bank digital currencies. And I first read about central bank digital currencies about a year ago from this website that I came across, the Bank of International Settlements or something like that. It's supposed, supposedly a bank of all the central banks, also the most powerful country central banks. And they put this white paper out saying, we're gonna go, we're gonna introduce central bank digital currencies. And uh, shortly thereafter, I saw the governor of the central bank in Nairobi talking about, yeah, uh, CBDCs, as they're called, coming out here in Nigeria, so, so across the world. So it's like, wait a minute, this, this, this little paper that I saw, and probably not that little, uh, obviously now has such a big impact that you're seeing this move moving across the world. And what does it really mean? And I look at what's happening in China, and in China, they, they've gone digital in terms of their currency, the yuan and uh, I've looked at videos you're probably quite aware of people who would be considered dissidents in China decrying what's happening right now. Big Brother is huge in China, that they cannot travel, they can't make any purchases because they're all based on their uh, uh, identifying number, that that's how they, they buy whatever it is that they buy, that they can't do certain things when the government doesn't like who they are. So they can't buy a bus ticket, a plane ticket, whatever it is, and so you can see that the CBDCs are kind of ominous in a sense. I mean they're very useful in certain ways but if it happens that anything that you purchase can only be done through a currency that's controlled centrally, then that starts to, to worry. And, and for me, and I I'd call me conspiratorial if you like, but in Revelations, it talks about a time when you will not be able to buy or sell without a certain mark. And this is written in the Bible. So you can kind of see, I'm not saying that CBDCs will be it, but you can start, start to see how some of these things might actually play out in the future. So it's a time of a lot of change. A lot of things are happening. And in a sense, this scripture that in, the, in Isaiah, it says darkness covers the earth and gross darkness its people. And I'll just read it, Isaiah 61, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over its people. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you, all assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. So this picture here of the darkness that I've been painting <clears throat> is clearly not what God wants for a start. And secondly, he has a solution and it's you and me. It's, it's interesting that God doesn't work except through people. It's interesting that very often you hear the phrase that or people ask the question, where was God when this was happening? How could God let bad things happen to good people? And to me, it seems fairly clear that the Bible says that God wants us to be his ambassadors. We are his action instruments of action here. And similarly, Satan has an opportunity to influence us to do what he would like. And then, of course, there's the influence of the flesh. But it's like both of them cannot do the acts. They have their hands tied unless they can convince somebody to do what they want to do. So yes, things will happen that um, are clearly unjust and when we ask, where was God, it says, well, he was in you and waiting for you to pray for something or to make sure by playing on hands or taking some action that you could avert the bad thing that has happened. It might seem simplistic, especially if somebody, says suffered some real um, pain through an experience and, and has these questions. But I feel ultimately, as we like to say, God is in control, I don't think he is because the, the, the earth has all this evil happening and he's waiting for us to implement that control that he wants to have. But if he was fully in control, then there really shouldn't be all the suffering that we see happening. So I think we need to think carefully about that. But it's beautiful in Isaiah 61 that he says, Arise and shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. And it is for us to really see how it is that that can be our reality. We talk about this being the haki, the truth, Uh, series and what really is truth. Is truth what you see around you or is it what God says? So very often we're stuck in a state of what is evident is factual is before you, but God, whatever God has said is opposite to what you're looking at and so that there's some input that has to be made to change what is on the ground, which is not really truth. Ultimately, Jesus is the truth. And that whatever you're seeing, that form of evil, whatever kind it might be, isn't who Jesus is. And therefore, it's up to us to be able to shine that light in and to change whatever that is into what it should be, what God says it should be. So, as we think about who we're supposed to be and God is supposed to use us in a certain way, not necessarily only as individuals, but as a body, I'm reminded of a condition that happens in the heart when people have to have these pads, like if they're in the hospital, it's often seen these scenes in movies, and they put these pads onto uh, the chest and they turn on the voltage and the body jumps as they're trying to resuscitate the heartbeat. And this this condition that the heart goes into is called fibrillation. And fibrillation, and the, the instrument that's used to reverse it is called a defibrillator. And some of my research when I did my doctorate was on this particular instrument. So it's something that I, I I had to look at and understand fairly well, even though I was looking at it from the engineering perspective. And so what happens in the heart, apparently the heart muscles are made from fibers. Lots and lots of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of fibers are what make up any muscle. And when these fibers stop working together, then whatever the muscle is supposed to do can't happen. So the heartbeat then is dependent upon uh, cooperative action between these fibers. And what it takes in that instance then is for an electrical current to be passed through at a certain level through the heart of fibers that they they do respond, uh, our our bodies do respond to uh, electrical impulse, and then they're thrown back into a proper uh, cooperative action that they should have. And so in a sense, this picture is very like what we are supposed to be as a body. That if we're not hearing God and working in concert and sort of doing things together, uh, we we need to have some kind of a shock come into us or some light shine into our mind so that we have, we're illuminated and understand how it is that we should be. We should be placed where we should be. So where are you placed? And in order for us to look at this, I'd like to uh, read Genesis 12, 1 to 9, please. We look at a wonderful example from the Old Testament of somebody who found his placement through God's leading. I'll read through it. The Lord had said to Abram, remember he was Abram first before he became Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went and the Lord had told him As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out of the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. For the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moriah at Shechem. At, the time, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, "To your offspring, I will give this land." So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there, he went onwards towards the east hills, the hills east of Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There, he built an altar to the Lord and called on His name, on the name of the Lord. And then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. So here, this is obviously a story that we've heard over and over as an incredible example of faith. And it isn't just faithfulness, but it's also being able to hear God. Wouldn't you hate to act with faith on something that wasn't God? So prior to being able to say that I need to apply my my faith and do the right thing, you have to be hearing God and you have to know who he is and what he's saying. And this clearly is something that uh, Abraham was gifted with, the ability to hear God and to know what he's saying. And I think that if you struggle with that, and I think a lot of us do, because there's noise. And what I said earlier about the soul, there are messages that may not be coming from God and coming from another source. We need to be able to have that discernment and understand. And I feel that we need to be able to be in touch with our spirit to understand when it is our spirit speaking and when it is our soul speaking and to be able to separate between them that through the word of God. So Abraham did this incredible thing. And, you know, you, you should picture yourself in this instance. That's what we should always do with these stories and say, what if it was me and you know what your situation is right now? We have varying situations, but many people have a family and, uh, and a community around them that they're used to and that uh, they, they, they like. I mean, they might not like everything, but they, let's say they love and the people around you who you love. And it's, it's very difficult to think that you will leave all of this completely. And it really causes reflection upon what is really important in this world. Yes, famil- fa- family relationships are incredibly important, but if God says leave wherever it is, and I'm speaking to you right now, you know your situation, and God might say you and your spouse and your kids, just leave all that you've become accustomed to and go to a place that you don't know But when you get there, I'll tell you what to do. I'm reminded of a story of one of the pretty famous evangelists in this country, a woman, and she (coughs) tells the story of how God told her to leave the house that she was in and leave it to somebody else. And so she called that person and the instructions she heard were go to a certain street in Nairobi and stand there and wait for my next instruction. (laughs) And as she tells the story, that's what she did. And she was standing with her, with her family, they had a car and stuff, and, they, and waiting for God's next instruction, not knowing where she was going where she was supposed to go. Now, if I, had inscr- if I had heard something like that, the likelihood is that I would probably think it was Satan speaking. I <laughs> said, so how am I going to just leave my house to someone and then go and wait for instructions on the Street? And, you know, those instructions might be delayed a little bit. And I don't know where I'm going, I my kids and my wife. It's like... Pretty impressive what he did. It's hugely impressive, in fact. And the other thing that we notice is that Lot followed him. And so that perhaps his following of the instructions was not perfect. Because he was told to leave everybody. leave, Go from your country, your people. Lot was his nephew. But he went with him. And we know, as the story tells us, that later on they sort of clashed. They had a lot of... um, servants working for them, and they couldn't sort of agree on where to graze the cattle and so on. So Lot had to go in a different direction, and he went the wrong way. He went to something what you could sort of interpret to be something that he was more familiar with. He went to Sodom and Gomorrah, which was a mistake. So he clearly wasn't hearing very clearly from God. But Abraham uh, uh, was, and Abraham in fact became uh, salvation for Lot when he found himself in trouble. And verse 8 tells us that God that Abraham, rather, called on the name of the Lord. And what might he have called on the Lord about on this point in his journey? In Lamentations, and three, uh, Lamentations 3, 50 to 56, it, goes, it says this, My eyes will flow unceasingly without relief until the Lord looks down from the heavens and sees What I see brings grief to my soul because of all the women of my city. I called on your name, Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ears to my cry for relief. You came near when I called you, and you said, Do not fear. So we can see there's a differentiation between that call to God and what we might think as typically of prayer and so on. It's like you're having this very deep uh, grief and desire for assistance, and you call out from a de- very, very deep place. The Bible says, Deep calls unto deep. And this is the kind of call that we can imagine that Abraham was making to God. And God responds over and over throughout his life from that point on until, in fact, he succeeds in what he's been called to do. So we need to thank God for calling us to wherever we're called to. But in this this story, the reflection for us is, how can I hear, like Abraham did, where I'm supposed to be? I live in Nairobi. It doesn't mean necessarily that you should move out of Nairobi. Maybe God wants you to move to another place within Nairobi in terms of where you work or another place in terms of where you live or in terms of getting involved in some ministry somewhere within the church, within the uh, well, through the church for us here, but within the city where you can have an impact on what's happening. There may be skills God has placed in you, resources and so on, that a lot of people need. And as I think you all know, sometimes it's a really little thing that you might do for somebody that can make a huge difference in their life. And to you, you might not even feel it. And of course, there are instances when you might have to make a big sacrifice. And to be able to do that as well can bring great blessings to us. And it's something that we should be looking out for all the time. The next scripture that I want to refer to is Numbers 13. And I'll read through it. For the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out to, uh, from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. These are their names, from the tribe of Reuben, Shamua, son of Zakur, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, son of Hari, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Jephune. From the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun, who is Joshua. <coughs> Hoshea is Joshua, that is. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, son of Sodi. From the tribe of Manasseh, that is the tribe of Joseph, Gadi, the son of, Bus- of Susi. From the tribe of Asher, Sethur, the son of Mikael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, son of Bopsi. These names. (laughs) From the tribe of Gad, Geuel, son of Maki. These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob towards Lebo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from exploring the, the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. They reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land into which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We saw the descendants of Anak there. These are the giants, the the Nephilim. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people, they're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored, they said the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we, we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grass, grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. So clearly a fearful report. And I think we can all relate to this kind of thing. When That picture that I painted about Nairobi and all the ills that we suffer as a city, that is a negative report and I might be guilty when I speak like that of what 12 of the, 10 of these 12 did. They came and spread a, a report that was negative, put fear in people's hearts. But really what we should be looking at is saying this, yes, those are the facts on the ground. But again, going back to what it means to have truth, who is in Jesus, which is in Jesus Christ. There is a picture of what Nairobi should be, which is not what we see. And the unlocking of that picture is through you and me. And so you have Caleb coming forward and not being daunted. And he says, no, no, no. We, can, we He saw the same things everybody else saw, but from his perspective, uh-uh, this is not a challenge. We can definitely go in. Why would he say that? Because for sure, like if you saw the Nephilim, these are big people, huge, you know, and in, ter- in terms of war at the time, it depended on your physical stature because it was like, you know, swords and spears and stuff like that, not machine guns and the kind of thing we have now. And so they were really scared, and you look at the report, they said that we were as grasshoppers in their sight, in our own sight, and in their sight. How did they know how those people saw them, you know? And it was clearly, as you're fearful, you sort of start imagining things that are like much worse than perhaps the reality is. And so, you look at Caleb, and Caleb trusted in God's faithfulness to keep his promises. He knew what the promises were. He knew that this is a land that they'd uh, they'd been called to occupy. They knew through their stories, they're, they're traveling throughout this whole um, uh, 40 years that they had in the, in the wilderness, that they had seen God's action over and over again. And it's said that that journey should have taken about 11 days, I, I read somewhere. Not, not the 40 years that it, do, it did. And it's an interesting perspective. God has, again, let's talk about that picture of the truth. And God, as we know, uh, is not in time. And I, I read this very helpful sort of description of how this might look that all of our lives and the world that we live in may look like a book. And so there's a beginning and an end. God is outside of the book. He is eternal. He doesn't have a beginning nor an end. He comes and he does set things up in the beginning. He is the alpha and the omega, but he's outside. So it's like he's looking at this book and we are inside the book. We, We can't be outside. And he can see every page. He can see every page because the last page is written in terms of the conclusion. But in that book, the pages that have this negative picture are not there. And so when you look at it, there is a terminology that's used in Greek to describe time, Kronos, and that is the time that we normally experience. And then there's Kairos, and Kairos is like God's timing. And so it's as if that book really just has God's events in it. So that 40 years were what they experienced in Kronos, but it should have really just taken 11 days, which would have been the Kairos experience, if you look at it that way. So everything that we look at, from the point of view of what we see, we should be seeing Nairobi, having people who believe in Jesus. We should be seeing that this, kind, this, this city should have a beautiful uh, re- revival. That's the word I'm looking for, a revival. And who will bring the revival? The Lord Jesus will always, uh, the Lord God will always call somebody and say, you go and preach and say the words because people have to hear. And the loudest preachers in the city right now are the politicians, are the, the DJs on the various radio stations and so on. We should be preaching louder and be heard because people need to hear the truth and then the Holy Spirit will act in them on that truth to convict them. And so our work is to speak and the Holy Spirit is to convict. The next scripture that I'll read is um, John 15, 1 to 17. It says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. If you remain in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you may bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. These are huge promises over and over, so many of them in this scripture. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Think about that. You think you chose Jesus that day that you uh, uh, became born again. But this Bible, is this this scripture is saying, I chose you. He chose you. He knew knew you from the beginning of time. And he came and chose you to become his, his follower is so powerful. And then he says, whatever it is, so long as you remain in me, that you ask, you shall have. So clearly, if you're remaining in him, whatever it is that you desire to ask will be what he has placed in you to desire to ask. It won't be a carnal desire or uh, an evil desire. Excuse me, desire. And so this is, this is a scripture that is so full of promise that we really need to engage with it. And... Uh, ask ourselves, how is it that we can actually be living in the manner that is described here? And it says, it tells us, you remain in me. you, If you follow my commands, then you will remain in my love. So that's what we have to be able to do is to remain uh, in his, well, faithful to his commands and the instruction to how we should live. And this is where Obviously, in terms of how to do this, we need to be repeatedly reminding ourselves of the word, keeping ourselves away from the negative messages that take away because we're all subject to having our, 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 um, our focus shifted to the wrong thing if we allow that to happen. And that's where the value of meeting every Sunday and being part of the the, the small groups and so on and reading the word over and over and, and so on is, is is all about being able to keep inside the word. Meditation. The Bible talks about meditation very often, which is distinct from prayer. And that is just really just sort of absorbing yourself in in what, what the word of God says, being able to be completely immersed in it. I used to do meditation. Uh, if some of you were here when I gave my 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 the sermon about my my testimony uh, about being in the new age for a very long time, and you know these messages about how to meditate abound uh, in terms of emptying your mind and so on. that's not what I mean at all. That is uh, a counterfeit of what it really means. The Bible does talk about meditation, and you should you should be looking for those times and places, a shrine perhaps within your home, a special place where you you sit and you always. Think about God and meditate on who he is and what it is that he wants, what he's done inside of you, how grateful you are to him. Just sort of having all your focus right there on what it is that God wants you to do. And that kind of changes you. The word comes and changes you inside, even I'm sure at the cellular level, but especially your soul, being able to be shifted towards the focus that you're required to have. There's one more scripture that I'd like us to go through. It's the last one from Philemon. It's the whole of the, the, the book. And this one speaks to um, the culture. The, the, as we talk about what Nairobi is or whichever city it is that you live in, there are practices that also prevent us from being able to engage in what God wants us to, to do. And in this instance, he's dealing with slavery. Paul is dealing with slavery. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to appear... Afia, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, our sister and Archippus to our fellow soldier and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ, and this is all now to Philemon, of course, and now he's coming to the point, he sort of said to him, well, you are very, very useful to us, and we love you, and so on. Therefore, although in Christ, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is, none other than, it is, it is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ <clears throat> that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I, don't want, I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave. So Onesimus used to be Philemon's slave and he he escaped or he, he, he took off, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done anything wrong, uh, done you any wrong, or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. A subtle reminder there. <laughs> I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And the one thing, <clears throat> and one thing more. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So you're seeing here that Paul is writing this public letter, and it is about um, a slave that was owned by this man, Philemon. And he's saying to him quite politely, and he starts by really sort of appreciating him and telling him that he really values who he is to the body and who he's been. And this this is interesting because Paul also points out that he's now old. So maybe it's not quite the same person that we remember reprimanding Peter, you know, years back, as soon as Peter was, uh, was sort of like talking about the circumcision or doing all kinds of things that were not really part of what was happening. He seemed to be fairly direct and not really sensitive to what feelings might have been uh, you know, hurt or anything like that. And really, ultimately, none of us should really be stuck with feelings and so on, but there's some diplomacy in this letter. But what it's really saying to us is that there are certain things that we must turn our backs on. Let's take, for example, if, if um, in, in our setting here, polygamy. <clears throat> polygamy was widely practiced in, in uh, this part of the world, most parts of the world, but this part of the world for sure. And how is it supposed to be considered now that Christ has come and it has been very clear that we should have just one wife. And so uh, one spouse really, cause polyandry is the other side of things It might be uh, you know, happening in some places as well. So really we're, we're saying that in all of this, as we look at where we're supposed to be placed in Nairobi, we should be looking at all these various aspects of the way things are, reflecting on, upon what they should be through our meditation and our prayer and then stepping out and being able to be, as is, as it said, the change that we want to see. So I think for now, I'm gonna end it there and uh, just with a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I just want to pray that the words that we have spoken, we've heard today from your word and those that you've spoken through me shall give us that word from you that will make it very clear to us where you expect us to be within the city that we belong to. Here in Nairobi, Father, there's so much need for your word and for action that comes directly from heaven to change what is into the kingdom of God, which is what we're sent to do. So, Father, our prayer is that coming out of this, we shall all be changed, our minds shall be opened and our ears shall be opened to your word so that we are better placed to be active and to be used by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.